Last week, we started off our two-week series focused around the cross. I was grateful for the way Pastor Jeff debunked a growing misperception of the crucifixion as some sort of cosmic child abuse and reaffirmed God's deep love and sacrifice for us. This week, I want to bring forward one of the earliest and yet least discussed aspects of the cross, the idea of the cross standing as the pinnacle symbol of God's victory in this world. Now, at first blush, you might hear that and think, this is just another sermon trying to deny or downplay our current struggle and plaster a Christian smile on your face. I understand. I would be pretty skeptical of that too. But if you'll trust me, this won't be one of those sermons. I'm preaching this sermon, honestly, because I need to hear it. This last year has been hard. In fact, saying this last year has been hard is kind of like saying the mountains around here get a little bit of snow in the winter. This year has been hard. And to my surprise, it actually feels like the tensions are getting worse. I know there are hopeful signs on the horizon, but right now I feel beat. I explained it to a friend that I feel like I'm in a street fight, and every time I get up, someone sucker punches me from behind and knocks me to the ground again. So even though this may sound like another sermon for our church, full disclosure here, I'm preaching this because I need to hear it. I need to hear it because I need to be reminded that struggle is not a scandal or an outrage. Rather, it is part of the Christian life. I find myself asking, Lord, what does a cruciform life look like? What should a life following Jesus look like? And how do we do that when things get hard, really hard? Is the cross, or more specifically, the victory of the cross, a real lens through which to examine our seasons of struggle? No doubt some of you are asking these same sort of questions. As we hear Easter and as we near Easter and celebrate Jesus' resurrection, Conversations coalesce around the cross. In hard times like this last year, where platitudes are plentiful, how do we talk about Jesus with substance? How do we avoid empty God talk about the cross? And really, how does the cross as victory shed new light on the way we see our struggle? That's why I love the Word of God, because it can help us explore these deep questions. That's not just some big book of moral do's and don'ts. It's actually the living, breathing Word of God that not only tells us the story of God's salvation, but actually works in us and helps us see how something so horrible as a cross could actually be God's great victory over sin, evil, and death. Let me show you what I mean. This morning, we'll be working through this short passage of Colossians. To be fair, this is just a short snippet of a large point Paul is trying to make with the Colossians. In this letter, Paul is addressing Christians, uh, a whole community that he hasn't even visited. He's heard of this church from Epaphras, a fellow church planner. He's heard disturbing news, though, that some false teachings are taking root. So he felt compelled to send them a letter and to try to set things right. Paul wants the Colossians to continue to live their lives in Jesus. He wants to remind them of their true identity in Jesus. In verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Before we dive in here, I have to say, when you're talking about Scripture, especially Scripture that references the cross, every phrase is like an iceberg, seemingly short and simple, but there's immense substance below the waterline. The same situation applies here. When Paul says, when we were dead in our sin, he's talking about the effect sin has and that it separates us from God. I know this runs contrary to our 21st century sensibilities, When someone starts talking about sin, it's very common to respond in defense, essentially asking, who are you to tell me what I'm doing wrong? But when when Paul says here, 
But what he says here is true. Our sin, left unaddressed by Jesus, unatoned for on the cross, ultimately leads to death. Not in maybe an immediate sense as a penalty, or at least not for most sins, but death in that ultimately our sin separates us from God. And it is only when we are reconciled to God that we have eternal life. Let me explain. As Pastor Jeff mentioned last week, God is holy, just, loving, and gracious. By holy, we mean a lot of things. But for right now, let's simplify it to mean pure, without sin. God can't even endure sin. God can't just be cool with our sin. He is purely, completely without sin. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. Any portion to be connected or accepting of sin, even a fraction of a percent, would render God unholy like water that has one drop of red food coloring in it. It's still water, even mostly water, but it's not pure water. Same with God's holiness. Even a drop of sin would render God no longer holy. And the thing is, it's not just a character choice God is making here. It's not that God is just choosing to be sticky on the subject of sin. It's in his ontological imperative, which is just a fancy way of saying holiness is essential to God's very being. If the God of the Bible ceases to be holy, he would cease to be God, or at least the God we'd want to follow. Now, some might say, well, that's great, God is holy, but I think he sets the bar too high. But here's the thing. If God is God, the one who created this whole existence, who sees all the implications of all the things that we do, then it makes a lot of sense to me that God should be the one who sets the standard for what is holy and unholy. Whatever we might think would be better doesn't really even factor in. Now, I know this can rub people wrong, especially people outside the church, who base their opinion of right and wrong largely on the prevailing morality of the culture around us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, if that's what God teaches, then I don't agree with God. And I can understand how some people would think that. But the trouble is, I don't think God is really asking for our consultation on the matter. So God's holiness is based on who he is, not what we think it should be. The point I'm trying to get at here is that God is holy. And also, God is just. Basically, that means he won't just ignore sin, nor overlook our quote-unquote minor indiscretions. Which means, uh, which when you really think about it, that's exactly the sort of God that we want. Can you imagine if God were holy, but unconcerned with justice? If he had a high moral standard, but at the end of the day, didn't really hold anyone to it. For our culturally acceptable sins, you know, like fudging on our taxes, losing our temper, cutting corners on people. At first we might agree, yeah, God could loosen up a bit, but we would be appalled if God loosened up in other areas, if God looked the other way when it came to murder or adultery or theft. No, we want a God who is holy and we want a God who is just. A God who not only has high moral standards, but also holds all of us equally to them. So God is holy and just. And when you think about it, those are both really good things about God. But here's the flip side. God is also loving. So loving, in fact, that God the Father sent his Son so that whoever might believe in him may have eternal life. And so loving that God the Son willingly came and laid down his life so that we might be reconciled to God our Father in heaven. Jesus is famous for saying, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for another. As Pastor Jeff explored last week, that is precisely the sacrifice Jesus willingly and purposefully made for us out of love. And God is so loving that God, even in his spirit, 
actually dwells within us, each of us now. And it is this indwelling of the Spirit that actually animates our whole Christian life. So God is holy, just, and loving. But he's also gracious, too. God is forgiving. And even though that's a natural outworking of his love, it's not a necessary one. You see, God could just love us, and regrettably, but stoically, leave us to bear the ultimate consequences of our sin. But he doesn't. God the Father sends God the Son, who already wanted to come anyways, to extend grace to us, because he loves us, and he wanted to save us, through Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross. There, God fulfilled his own justice, reconciling us to our holy God and Father in heaven. So you can see why Paul would say, when you were dead in your sins. But at the same time, this is precisely why Paul can say God made you alive in Christ. Sin, which results in separation from God and as a result, ultimately death, has been addressed on the cross. Because of God's love and grace, we have been reconciled to God, our sin atoned for. Now we, in our holiness, can approach our holy God, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, justice fulfilled, holiness kept pure, and as a result, we live fully alive now and eternally alive in the future as we stand with Christ. Okay, so we were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive in Christ through the cross. So we've covered our first verse <laughs> somewhat. I told you, when we're talking about the cross, every line is like an iceberg. Next, Paul says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul moves into a new metaphor. You see, in Judaism, sin and righteousness were viewed like a cosmic ledger. You basically went through life, adding up righteous deeds in one column and sinful deeds in the other. The trouble is, when you're grading on God's scale of holiness, our ledger gets a lot of red on it, more than we can ever make up for with our attempts at righteousness. Using that metaphor, Paul is essentially saying here that through the cross, and Jesus' victory over sin, our ledger has been taken away. In fact, even one better, it has been nailed to the cross, precisely with Jesus, who bore our sin on the cross. By his faithfulness, we have been reconciled to God. We have been made right with him. Okay, I feel like we could stop right there and just take the next week to let all of that soak in. But it gets better. Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumph over them by the cross. Let's start with this first phrase, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Okay, so what does it mean here? What does Paul mean here by powers and authorities? Some scholars think Paul means heavenly powers and authorities, essentially the evil powers and creatures of heaven, those who challenge God for control of creation. Other scholars think that Paul is speaking of earthly powers and authorities. Think governors, dictators, emperors, landlords, slave owners those who hold and exert power outside of God's kingdom. The trouble is, it's an unnecessary dichotomy. It's not either or, it's both and, both heavenly and earthly authorities and powers. For on the cross, Jesus atoned for our sin. As we talk about it a few, talked about a few minutes ago, by atoning for sin, God has reconciled us to himself, which not only gives us life more full right now and life forever once we die, it also sets, up free, sets us free from the claim Satan has on our lives. Because of sin, as we laid out earlier, the ultimate consequence of sin is separation from God. And separation from God ultimately leads to death, or Gehenna, or Hades, or as we say in English, hell. Hell is the realm of Satan. In Hebrew, the word for Satan is ha-satan, 
we think of Satan in English, and we tend to think of a little red guy with horns, pitchfork, pointy tail. Scratch all of that. Rather, think of Satan more as ha-satan, the accuser, the enemy. Something more along the lines of an evil prosecuting attorney. The one who is trying to put, pull all of God's, pull, uh, put all of humanity away from God. To pull us away from him forever. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated sin, dealt with it, atoned for it. When he did, Hasatan lost his case against us. Or in modern legal terms, the legal ledger, the evidence, was taken away and nailed to the cross. Hasatan no longer has a case. He has been disarmed, as Paul states it. Then the dominoes start falling. Because once Jesus has a victory over Hasatan, he also wins victory over the rulers and powers of the world who are animated, manipulated, and encouraged by Hasatan. He controls them by playing on their sinful motives, motives like greed, lust for power, arrogance. When Jesus defeated Hasatan, he also disarmed the earthly powers. For even though they may kill our bodies, our life is not confined in this mortal body but rather set free in our heavenly bodies, which Christ gives through his faithfulness on the cross. So even though Hasatan, the heavenly power, and the earthly powers he manipulates, even though they still have the appearance of power, they have been disarmed. Our salvation in Christ has ultimately set us free from them. But there's more. Jesus didn't just die on the cross with a whimper. He actually made public spectacle of the powers and authorities. That's a surprising and scandalous irony of the cross. To the unfaithful, the cross looks like utter defeat. It looks like a dismal failure. No other religion celebrates a crucified Savior. In fact, that is one of the major stumbling blocks for Jewish people. I remember in one of my seminary courses, we had a Jewish rabbi come and give a lecture. I remember one of my classmates who asked with probably more bravado than he should have, why didn't this Jewish rabbi believe in Jesus? The rabbi responded, because Jesus failed Mashiach 101. In Judaism, messiahs don't die on crosses. They triumph in every meaningful way. They lead God's people to victory through, well, victory, not crucifixion. Crucifixion was a scandalous, degrading way to die. After 2,000 years of Christian reflection, we see it differently. But for most people, the cross looks like Jesus failed. It failed miserably. But with eyes of faith, with even a cursory understanding of what God is doing on the cross, we realize that even though the cross, which looks like it's parading Jesus' failure, is actually parading the utter defeat of the Jewish and Roman rulers and authorities, and every worldly dictator, ruler, and authority they represent. And it's kind of hard to see, because the NIV sanitizes the Greek here a bit, but in Greek, it literally says, and having stripped the power and authorities and paraded them in front of everyone, that takes on a whole new meaning when you realize that in the ancient world, conquering generals would strip the conquered kings, take their armor, their weapons, even their clothes, and humiliate them by literally binding their hands and making them walk behind the chariot. Basically, a long, degrading walk of shame. They would parade them in front of everyone as they returned triumphantly through the city gates into their home city. Paul is saying God has done something similar here. You see, in our upside-down world, Jesus' crucifixion looks like he is the one stripped and made a spectacle. But with faith, we see the world turned upside right. We see that God has accomplished his goal. He is victorious over sin, Satan specifically, and evil generally. And it's the rulers and authorities who have been laid bare, and their corruption paraded in front of everyone. On the cross, God has laid them bare. 
And he has showed their wickedness and ultimately their impotence to defeat Jesus and ultimately their inability to block, hinder, or obstruct in any way God's salvation of humanity. Now it's true, this victory over rulers and authorities can seem pretty thin on the ground most days. We don't have to look too hard or read the news too long before we hear of yet another person in power who's grabbed more, who's abused their power and oppressed the people below them. That certainly does create problems for me. It's hard to claim victory when the world still is such a mess. And honestly, it feels like it's getting worse. About the only thing that makes sense for me is that we live between the times, between Jesus' first coming and his victory initiated, fully won, but initiated on the cross, and his second coming, when ultimately his victory will be complete. It is by this full-orbed understanding that we can say the cross is not some ignoble defeat, but rather is God's glorious victory. As I look back over this last year and witness the continuing escalation of tension, tension in marriages, tension in relationships, even tension in our churches, some days it feels a lot more like defeat than victory. I suspect a lot of outsiders, when they look at the church over this last year, I suspect they see more defeat than victory. They've bought into the idea that religion is just a human creation propped up by Sunday morning institutions. They think Christianity is merely a building and Sunday morning rituals. They couldn't be more mistaken. What they don't realize, and sometimes we need a reminder too, is that the church is the people of God, gathered around following and worshiping Jesus, our risen Lord, our victorious King, who won that victory on the cross of all places. I wish I could help them see, and honestly remind myself, and maybe some of you, is that it is precisely in the struggle that the church thrives. True, she may stumble under the strain, the weariness, the tensions, but if we will keep our eyes on Jesus, our crucified and yet victorious King, we will rise. Out of the struggle, the church will rise. Our whole faith is based on crucial moments that to the untrained eye look like defeat, but are in fact God's glorious victory. I see this playing out in our personal lives too as I reflect on the cross as victory. It throws a whole new light on our personal struggles. With Jesus' last days, what looked like a series of regular failures leading up to the cross weren't actually failures at all. They were purifying moments, refining fires. They were Jesus faithfully obeying and following his Father. And it's true, they led to the cross and suffering and humiliation and even death. But they also led to God's grace, God's salvation, and God's glorious victory over sin, Satan, and death. The realization that Jesus is victorious, both initially on the cross and ultimately when he comes again, this realization wells up hope in me. It recasts my struggle. It recasts our struggle. It rubs off the illusion of defeat and reveals the reality that even in our struggle, maybe especially in our struggle, that we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. Not that we become proud or puffy, trumpeting some fabricated or deluded triumphalism that's so popular these days. No, when I think of Christ's victory, it recasts my current struggles and invokes a more Christ-like sense of victory. That meek, humble, quiet, enduring, steadfast sort of victory. The kind of victory that the untrained eye sees as defeat, but we recognize as the very victory of God. 
I encourage you to spend time this week purposely recounting all the ways Jesus, Jesus triumphed on the cross, his triumph over sin, his triumph over Satan and all the earthly powers, his triumph over death. And as you do, let the victory in his suffering shed new light on the victory in our struggle. Let it remind us that on the cross, Jesus was victorious. And ultimately, so are we. Amen.